Hey y'all, you're listening to Crying and Trying, the podcast, the comprehensive guide for cultivating emotional intelligence in a fucked up world. This podcast focuses on how oppressive systems and the human experience interact and impact our mental health. As a disclaimer, I am not a licensed mental health care professional or an expert. I am just one human who has lived through the mental health experience, sharing my story and giving my advice. Please, if you or someone you know needs help, seek it out immediately by a professional. I will have hotlines, warm lines, and other support resources available in the show notes. Howdy, friends. It's Lexi, your host again for another episode of Crying and Trying. Welcome back. Um, If you are a return listener, uh, thanks for joining us. If you are a first-time listener... Um, So this is the third and final episode in my autism awareness mini series for the month of April. Um, April is autism awareness month. Um, I am putting out episodes for autism acceptance. Um, I've said this multiple times, but we're all aware about autism and we need to move towards accepting um, all of the different flavors of autism that there are um, and broadening our um, idea of what autistic people are what they experience um and all that jazz so um I have put out a survey uh for to gather some responses about other people's experience with being nonverbal or partially verbal or selective mutism um and sensory overwhelm uh these are two aspects of you know, autism that are seen as more extreme um, and are harder for neurotypical people and just even autistic people who have an experience to understand. Um, And, you know, recently I actually had a very um, difficult experience with this. Um, And, you know, I've mentioned it in the past few episodes and I'm going to be doing, um, you know, a, a deep dive on this whole problem and the communication issues that arose um, and just kind of clearing my side of it, too, uh, because like I. There's a lot of uh, incomplete information that the people I'm having a conflict with have, um, but the whole conflict arose because I was put in a situation where I was extremely anxious um, and so selective mutism is design is de- defined as an anxiety disorder where a person is unable to speak in certain social situations. Um, so, you know, so like, you know, it's stressful for people when they have to talk. And um, I think that, you know, this is a this is a mental health condition in and of itself, but it's also um, a trait of a lot of autistic people and a lot of people with just anxiety in general. I also liken it to um, a freeze response, flight, flight, freeze, or fawn. Um, Those are trauma responses. Like when you feel like you are in an unsafe situation, one of the responses is to freeze. Um, And that can sometimes be verbally. Um, I think I mentioned this experience on a previous episode as well, but like Alex, um, you know, the other day, like I was doing getting ready and Alex was here because his schedule was changed 
Um, so Alex was here and, you know, he is um, doing chores, like helping out in the morning. But I have like a very set routine. Like I need the sink for certain things. We have a very small apartment also for like context. And, um, you know, I was stressed because it was just a bad morning. I was really overwhelmed. I wasn't used to having Alex there in the morning. And even with like the person that I am most comfortable with, the person that I have the best communication I've ever had in my entire life. I froze over something as small as me needing to use the sink and him being in the way. But it's because, you know, the the thought processes that my brain goes through, um, my body still, like all the trauma that I have, reacts as if this is a dangerous situation because I'm stressed. Uh, cortisol is being released into my system and my body is reacting to that. And, you know, I've been in, in such high stress situations my whole life due to the trauma that sometimes when I'm feeling stressed, I overreact and it's not anything that I can help. But in this situation, I did overreact. I was stressed. I was worried about if I was going to have enough time to get all my stuff done. And I couldn't even tell Alex what was wrong. I stood behind him and like was trying to speak and I could only make like throat noises. I was like, and that, that was all I could do. Like I couldn't get words to come out. And like my brain just kind of froze and I I like couldn't even form words if I wanted to type them out and text them to him. So I just like walked away and then like had to let myself process what was happening. And then, you know, later I explained to him what had happened. Um, and, you know, so even in a super safe, super low stakes environment, I still experience selective mutism periodically. Like if I get um, stressed and overwhelmed about something, like I, sh- I tend to shut down a lot of the time. Um, that is the way that my brain and body is used to protecting itself. So I was in a situation, um, with some people that I don't know very well, um, that were previously my friends and I have, um, since cut ties with because, um, this whole situation was just uh, blown out of proportion and people's reactions were not okay. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not okay with the way I was treated. Um, but a lot of the conflict is stemming from the fact that I wasn't communicating enough. And in this moment, you know, I am just going to give cliff notes. Like I, you know, there was a lot of miscommunications involved. Again, I am not blaming any of these people for the situation, But um, it was the reactions to what happened that made me really uncomfortable and upset and feeling unsafe in my relationships with these people. So, you know, I was with a bunch of people who are also neurodivergent in some aspect, also have a lot of trauma, also struggle with a lot of anxiety and mental health concerns. So, you know, we were all having mini meltdowns all over the weekend, which is fine, you know, like. I'm used to that par for the course. Like I'm very chill with that. Someone was having a hard time and you know, it's midnight in Boston in an area that none of us are super familiar with. Like we've all been before. Um, and my friend, um, couldn't find their partner was left the venue without like telling anybody where they were going. So I followed to make sure they were okay. 
And then I ended up deciding to hang back to give this person space. I thought I had clearly communicated, I am just hanging back. Like I'm not going back to the venue. I'm not going back to find other people because these are the people that I was had all my things that were supposed to help get me home. Um, and my phone was very close to dying and I had um, expressed that. I had a portable charger and it wasn't working anymore. It had used up all of its charge. So like I hung back and under the assumption that, you know, this person is going to find my other friend, they're going to come back to the car and everything will be fine. It wasn't, that wasn't how it happened. So my phone ends up dying. Before it died, I had texted this person and told them where I would be in front of the 7-Eleven that was right next to the car. Um, and, you know, my watch wasn't dead, so my phone died. But, like, you know, I was alone sitting in the dark, in the cold, um, without any of my things and with a dead phone for about 45 minutes. Um, and I think that that would cause anybody to be really stressed, um, much less somebody with uh, PTSD and anxiety disorders and social anxiety and all of this other stuff. So like, I think it's very reasonable that I was having uh, an anxiety attack. And this, again, I'm not going to call it a panic attack because I'm trying to be much more precise with my words. Um, it was definitely an anxiety attack because it had a trigger. I knew what the issue was. I knew where it was coming from, but it was really intense anxiety. Started crying on the curb. Uh, multiple strangers came up and asked me if I was okay. And, you know, I don't have my phone. I have no way of communicating with any of the people I went to this show with. I, you know, and the thing that you always hear when you're lost or disconnected from your group is stay where you are. So I had told them I was going to be in front of the 7-Eleven. So I stayed there because I was like, okay, at some point they're going to check their phone. They're going to come meet me here and everything will be fine. Um, and, you know, for a bunch of other reasons I'm not going to get into at this moment, that didn't happen. I ended up, you know, going to 7-Eleven, trying to buy a charger, wasn't allowed to charge my phone there, wasn't allowed to charge my phone at McDonald's, couldn't find any outlets. So I end up making my way back to the venue. Um, once we get to the venue, we, me, it's just me. Once I get back to the venue, I find one of the four people I was with run up to her sobbing, full on sobbing. And like, can't really speak. I'm still overwhelmed. So I just kind of blurt out a few sentences and I'm like, my phone is dead. These people, A and B are mad at me. I don't know where they are. I've been alone for an hour and I'm freaking out. That's all I can get out. And I'm crying. Um, you know, they go and charge my phone in their car. All as well. But like, I'm still unable to speak. I am so stressed and like finally just starting to feel safe and okay. But I'm still worried. I don't know where these other people are. I'm pretty sure that they're mad at me for a, a bunch of other reasons that I'm not going to go into. But that's also something I struggle with. That causes me to spiral. If I think people are mad at me, it's the end of the world. And I have a very hard time dealing with it. So, you know, I've been alone without any way to contact people in the dark, in the city. I normally have uh, a knife and pepper spray with me, but because we were at a concert, can't bring that stuff into a venue. That's all locked in my friend's car and I don't know where they are and I haven't talked to them in an hour. So I have no way to protect myself um, while I am actively having an anxiety attack. So then I get back to my friends. I can't speak. Um, I also wasn't being comforted by these other people. And so when my other friends come up, they don't talk to me. Nobody acknowledges me. Nobody says anything. Again, I am not in verbal. I can't speak. 
I'm also extremely anxious and I think these people are mad at me. So like that makes it even more difficult for me to be able to explain what's happening. And my phone is charging in someone's car. So I, even if I could type it out, I couldn't do it at that moment. So, you know, I'm continuing, continuing to not, no one's talking to me. I can't communicate. I can't explain what's happening. So I, Finally, after I'm like, okay, my phone must be somewhat charged, I go up to one of these people and I say, I blurt out, like, I need my phone, I'm going to go home. So this person knew I was going to go home, they get my phone, I separate myself from the group, end up contacting Alex, still can't call him because I can't talk, and he ends up getting me a lift, you know, I go home, but then as soon as I'm in the lift, and I had told people, at this point, I'm frustrated and upset because I'm having an anxiety attack. I felt like I was being ignored and I felt like I was left alone for an hour. I wasn't aware of the situations that were happening with other people. So that contributes to why these people responded the way they did. I'm still not excusing the way that they responded. But basically, these people are getting mad at me because I didn't communicate what was happening and I just left. When like, ultimately, I couldn't communicate. I tried. I was doing my absolute best, but I was also very afraid. Like I was left in a really vulnerable situation where I could have gotten hurt. Like I am a survivor of sexual assault and abuse. I have PTSD. So being in that situation obviously is going to be extremely triggering for me. So I left and I had two people who were attacking me via text for leaving And then throwing their own episodes in my face and saying like, well, this could have been solved if you had communicated. Basically victim blaming. Like at that time, I hadn't been able to explain that I couldn't communicate. But then even after we talked about things, um, these people still couldn't wrap their heads around the fact that I went nonverbal and I was having selective mutism. Um, And one of these people is autistic. And this is what is extremely frustrating to me. And, you know, part of the reason why I felt the need to do this episode, because someone who is autistic couldn't understand another autistic person going into sensory overwhelm and going into selective mutism. Um, And so, you know, I also saw this tweet and I will share it um, on my... um, in my show notes, but it's somebody at uh, P-L-S-C-A-L-L-M-E-K-Y, so please call me Kai. They say, autistic people who experience mutism in relationships when confrontation is afoot should be able to text, write, or draw to express their feelings to their partner, friend, or family member without being accused of stonewalling or being immature. So I retweeted this. I was like, hell yeah, this is important. We need to talk about this because it is something that's seen as being immature, right? Like it's seen as like, oh, you're not talking. Like grow up, use your words. That's always something that was thrown at me. Use your words. Sometimes you can't use your words. And I was in a situation where I didn't have my phone. I didn't feel safe with these people. And so then once I did have my phone, still unable to talk, I'm not gonna contact them because I haven't felt safe. So, um, you know, And this is, it's funny because this tweet was then retweeted by the person that doesn't understand how I could go through selective mutism in a situation where I was extremely stressed and anxious and overwhelmed and I felt unsafe. Um, So, you know, this is my recent experience with being selectively mute, having the sensory overwhelm. 
Um, and so I put out a survey and, you know, granted, I didn't get very many responses. Again, like I'm really bad at planning things in advance. I don't like think about things with enough time to disseminate these surveys. So it's a very, very small sample size. It is not indicative of autistic people as a whole, but I just wanted to get a variety of uh, responses so that I could share other people's experience with this and like reinforce the idea that like autistic people aren't a monolith and we all experience things differently. Um, So with that, I'm gonna get into sharing some of these responses um and yeah but I did put out a survey um on only about seven people responded um I'm also going to include my own uh input on this um so I had um oh wow sorry I had six people respond um, two thirds of those people were between the ages of 26 and 35. Um, and one of the respondents was between the ages, uh, or one third of the respondents were between the ages of 16 and 25. Um, so about half of the respondents actually don't consider themselves autistic. Um, so I opened up this survey to anybody who has experienced selective mutism or seen other people experience it same thing with sensory overwhelm and selective mutism and sensory overwhelm are not unique to autistic people um they do co-occur in autistic people quite often um but autistic people are not exclusively the only people who experience these phenomena um so although this is an autism acceptance month mini series you know traits that i'm talking about apply to other groups of people and people who don't consider themselves autistic as well. Um, so we want to keep that in mind. Um, so about half of the respondents were don't suspect that they're autistic. Um, 16% realized uh, in their late teen, early adulthood. And then a third of the respondents um, realized or suspected that they may be autistic um, after the age of 25. So... Um, We also have uh, half of the respondents are not formally diagnosed as autistic. We have 16% is in the process of seeking out a diagnosis and um, 33% are um, formally diagnosed as having autism by a medical professional. Um, So as I've mentioned, a lot of people who are autistic um, do have a lot of comorbidities. Um, a very, very high number of autistic people. And again, I don't have the numbers. I haven't read the studies. I am just doing, um, God, what's the word? I don't know. Like my observation of what I've seen. So, um, we had all six respondents, um, do experience anxiety to some degree. Five of the people who responded um, experience some form of ADHD or depression or some other mood disorder, um, like bipolar. Uh, four out of the six respondents have or experience PTSD or complex PTSD. And then we have one respondent um, who experiences borderline or a different personality disorder, as well as psychosis and OCD. And I'm not looking at specifically which respondents those are. So I don't know if the same respondent 
has borderline psychosis and OCD or not. And I just have one out of six for each of those. Um, so for the people who do classify themselves as autistic, either with or without a formal diagnosis that did this survey, some of the signs, I asked what some of the signs that they were autistic that people never picked up on or never noticed. Again, all of these answers were um, optional. Um, so some people didn't respond. And the common answers were, you know, extreme emotions and emotional overload, um, sensory overload, um, being confused without super explicit constructions, not understanding peers, and then social avoidance as a result, sensory issues um, from food to light to noise, um, hyperfixations, stimming. Um, someone just said unique quirks. Another person said they're OCD. Um, and then, you know, multiple people mentioned refusing to break from routines or needing a lot of time to adjust to change. Um, unless you have like a big random burst of energy, it's very hard to do those things. So these are all very similar things to kind of the list that I had put out in the first episode. You know, I've had really big emotions my whole life. Um, and I think, so I'm just going to have like a little commentary on this. So one thing too, and I think that this is a common misconception is that like autistic people don't um, pick up on social cues. And um, I think that there's also another side of that. Um, <laughs> like that autistic people also are on the other side of that spectrum and are hyper aware of social cues. Um, I think, you know, again, remember autism is like that circle and we all have different, um, you know, strengths and areas of support. And some autistic people are hyper aware of social cues. And, you know, for me, that is the case. And um, one of the respondents also said this, you know, they they noticed cha minute changes in other people's behavior. And I don't remember where I saw this. It was definitely a tweet, but I'm like, was it my page? Was it the podcast page? I don't remember. Um, but I do know that a lot of autistic people spend so much time masking that we are, you know, trying to fit in we're trying to act like a neurotypical we're trying to act like an allistic person so we've really figured out like what those social cues are like we know that like crossing your arms or like a furrowed brow and again we some of us not all of us but those that are hyper aware of these and have a lot of hyper vigilance and I do think that, you know, probably people who have the autistic people who have a lot of trauma will experience this more, right? That is a symptom, a trait of having PTSD is the hypervigilance and being hyper aware of your surroundings. And that includes people. Um, slight changes in tone of voice, slight changes in body language, slight shifts in like even the amount of words that you're using. Like if someone is usually really verbose and wordy and then they're really short all of a sudden a lot of us are able to pick up on that. Um, so that was also included in that one of those responses. Um, but I just think it's important to highlight that, you know, a lot of these 
uh, stereotypes or assumptions that society has about autistic people, you know, like <laughs> that they can't read social cues and don't know how to be social in social situations. It's really um, limiting and also just kind of, I feel like further infantilizes and, and dehumanizes autistic people. Not that there's anything wrong with the autistic people that struggle with those um, social cues, but it's like, I feel like it's just a way to lump everyone together and be like, oh, they just don't know how to be social. They don't know how to deal with people. And it's just like a way to other. Um, but that's also not including the autistic people that are able to do that and then actually have a lot of stress and anxiety that come from being hyper aware of social interactions and social cues. Um, so building off of that last question, I asked these people how they came to realize they were autistic. Again, all of these questions were um, voluntary. A few people are saying they're not sure that they are and they're still thinking about it. Um, the other people on here are saying uh, that, you know, a lot of the autistic people that they've met online and in real life had very similar behaviors to them. Um, and that they did a lot of research until they felt comfortable with self-diagnosis. One respondent actually said that their therapist picked up on it before they did. Um, and when they finally accepted it was when they realized, <laughs> and this is so funny, I'm not laughing at this person, but they just said, I realized, quote, just how not normal it is to scream nonsensically in response to too much noise. <laughs> like... I feel you like I I haven't screamed because I mask so much but like it's funny that you're like you know I scream nonsensically in response to too much noise so like you're actively making more noise because there's too much noise but it's just like you it's an uncontrollable response right and you know like I I giggled when I read that response because one of the things that I started to realize like I just make fucking weird noises all day. And especially when I'm happy or uncomfortable, like there's a lot of grunts and like, and like, and so just, I don't know. I just resonated with that of the realization of like how not normal it is to do something. But, um, you know, I feel like there's, it's when we can look at this with a little bit of levity and a little bit of humor. And I, you know, that, that response also makes me a little sad too. This person is realizing how not quote normal it is to do that. And it's just how othering it feels to be like, oh, nobody else does this. I'm a fucking weirdo. Like it just hurts my heart a little bit, but that's why we're doing these. That's why we're having these conversations. Um, all of these are, or most of these are open-ended as well. I wanted people to be able to answer freely and without restriction. Um, so the next question is, how has being autistic affected your mental health? I said, if not autistic, no response needed. Also, nobody needed to respond anyway. So um, I'm, I have uh, a lot of these people said that it impacts their mental health in a lot of ways. Um, again, there's one person who's not sure if um, they are autistic or if it's anxiety or if it's OCD. Um, and, you know, that's something, too, that I want to validate that, like, you don't have to have all the answers and you don't have to know for sure. But even if you, like, have a, a suspicion that you might be autistic and you 
resonate with some of these traits or some of the, I don't know, autistic life hacks, that doesn't mean that you're not allowed to use them. Like just because you don't know if you're autistic doesn't mean you can't, you know, be a part of the neurodivergent community and relate to these people and, and, you know, have similar experiences. Um, but, you know, this person said that they're very particular with OCD and really anxious. And so those things are going to have an impact on your mental health as well. Um, so one person said that, you know, they've always been comfy in their weirdness, but as an adult, it's lonely without friends. And I think that that's, um, a very common theme with a lot of autistic people. Uh, we are social beings and autistic people have a difficult time socializing, you know, even within groups of other autistic people, like it's not given that all autistics are going to like each other. Um, and as an adult, it's hard to make friends. And I think as an autistic adult, it's even harder to make friends. And so if you don't have social circles or you feel lonely like that can impact your mental health. But, um, you know, I'm very happy that this person is comfortable with who they are and embraces their quirks. Um, that's awesome. I'm so happy for you. Um, but then I have some respondents on here too. Um, you know, people say that it's really hard having people constantly misunderstand you and then also vilifying you for something out of your control. Um, so this is something that I really resonate with. And, you know, I said this already, like I've had a lifetime of mis being misunderstood. And another person in here is saying, you know, I always misunderstand people's comments thinking that they're literal. And like that ends up taking a toll on you mentally. Like it's like mental gymnastics to try to hyper analyze and overanalyze every single thing that you're experiencing and doing. Um, you know, I also have a, a respondent who said that meltdowns, um, so like sensory overload, like having a meltdown can lead to depressive episodes and vice versa. So like um, when you're depressed, depressed, it can trigger an autistic meltdown. Um, they also say, you know, having really high anxiety can trigger them to go nonverbal, but then they also have hyperfixations that help them cope with anxiety and depression. So I really like how this person acknowledge the positives and the negatives of being autistic that, you know, like these are a part of me. And like, I also struggle with depression and anxiety and that can trigger some of my autistic traits to come out or my autistic traits can trigger the anxiety and depression, but it's like all a part of me. And then I also have hyperfixations, you know, the things that bring me joy that help me to cope with those things. So autism can be really impactful on your mental health in a lot of ways, but it's also how you choose to look at it. You know, this person could sit there and hyper-focus on the negative aspects of it, but they're like, no, my hyper-fixations, like, yeah, what meltdowns suck and sensory overwhelm sucks, but like, I have the things that I love to help me get through it. Um, so for me, being autistic has affected my mental health. And, you know, I haven't realized that I'm autistic until recently, but I do think that it is a big part of a lot of my self-esteem issues. Um, you know, I've always felt like I didn't belong. I've always felt like a weirdo. I'm always concerned about my how others perceive me and what other people think about me. Um, and I think a lot of that is because I'm autistic, because I know that I am different, because I know that I carry myself differently. And honestly, in, if you're different, 
that is dangerous. If you are different, like if you think about it on like an animalistic primal level, like evolutionarily, if we weren't evolved with language and, and the capacity to communicate like we have, if you are different and you have an adaptation or you have a mutation that isn't the same as the rest of the pack, like you're going to get left behind, like survival of the fittest, natural selection. So like that I think is part of our innate desire to fit in and to belong and to be part of a group. Um, And so it's really hard when you feel different to like, for me, I feel like I've had to choose to assimilate and uh, be accepted or to be myself. And no matter which path you go on that, it's it's difficult, right? If you're going to be yourself, then you have to be ready to take the criticism or the judgment that comes with it. And then if you try to assimilate and just be part of society, then you really have to stifle yourself. And both of those are hard. I don't know. Again, I want to remind everybody that isn't autistic and that is autistic. Autism is not a mental health condition. It is a neurotype. It is literally a difference in the way your brain is mapped out. And that is not a psychological disorder. Um, It's just a different way of viewing the world. But having autism and being an autistic person can impact your mental health for a variety of reasons. The next question that I asked everybody is, what is something that you wish more people understood about autism and autistic adults? And I really love all of these responses. So I'm just going to read them word for word. Um, first one, I wish people understood that it's not a straight line between, between quote, not really autistic and very autistic, end quote. You can't always tell just from the way someone acts because they may be masking. The second person said, we have feelings. And I think that that one is so huge. We're not robots. Third person says, they just need more understanding and patience. Fourth, we are not infants. Many of us can control it too well because of how we were raised, but it hurts in so many ways to suppress the way our brains work to function in society. Fifth says autistic people are perfect as they are. Love that. Yes, we are. And then the last one says don't judge a person person by their diagnosis alone. So I think if we take all of these in consideration, you know, if we approach people in general with more compassion and not define them by their diagnosis and just like see people as people and understand that we are all different and are going to be coming from different places, that that is where we can start to do this healing. Um, so now we get into the selection of, uh, you know, where I ask people to talk about specifically experiences with being partially verbal, nonverbal, or selectively mute and having some sort of sensory overwhelm. I did also open this up to if people have witnessed other people experiencing these things, because, you know, that outside perspective is helpful as well. Um, so We had um, a third of people have definitely had experiences being nonverbal, partially verbal, or selectively mute. Um, 16% haven't, and then 16% um, are not sure. So anybody that said yes or they're not sure, 
um, went on to the rest of the section to answer the questions. So we only have five people who potentially responded in this. Um, so for the nonverbal, partially verbal, selectively mute survey. Um, so actually all six people ended up going through this. Um, blah, blah, blah. Never mind. Okay. So we have 50% of people rarely experience um, the phenomenon of being selectively mute. 16% never experience it. 16% experience about, uh, about half the time. And 16% experience it sometimes. So I define half the time as 40 to 60% and sometimes as 20 to 40% and rarely as less than 20% of the time. Um, so most people like this isn't this is not happening super often for a lot of people. One of these respondents got it more than others. Um, and one person like never experiences it. And that is just, you know, more evidence of the spectrum. So I ask people if instances of being selectively mute um, are are they triggered by anything in particular? And some people said no, they don't know what triggers them. Other people say it's just their trauma, like it's it's a trauma response for them. And for me, that is the case. Like uh, selective mutism is a trauma response. It's part of my freeze response. Um, some the, someone said, you know, sometimes they're completely random. But they have been able to notice that when they're triggered by high amounts of stress, whether it's anxiety, depression, or general everyday life stress. And I think that, you know, this is in line with all of the research and any of the uh, resources that you would try to find um, that any sort of anxiety can trigger this. And it can be social anxiety. It could be, you know, like having your, your routines change. It could be any any number of things um someone else said they had a very specific instance uh they had a meltdown and they just became frozen staring in the mirror for over 20 minutes unable to speak unable to move and it wasn't fun like the only way they were able to get out of it was their cat broke them out of the cycle um and another person says sometimes they just don't want to hear their own voice it's too stimulating and you know, I never had considered that when I was thinking about this because it's, um, you know, it's your voice, right? It's coming out of your head. How could that be overstimulating? But like, I'm like, you know how you hear everything louder in your own head, right? You hear chewing louder and you hear your everything. So like, that makes a lot of, like, if you're already overstimulated and then you're talking, like all that noise is right there. So yeah, I could totally see how your own voice could be overstimulating. Um, so some people said, yeah, their instances are triggered. Some say no. Some say, you know, I don't know. So it runs the whole gamut of the human experience. So I asked people what this feels and looks like for them. What does being semi-verbal, partially verbal, or selectively mute look and feel like for you? Um, so I'm going to read these again verbatim just because I think that the uh, responses are really important to capture in their entirety. Um, so first one, quote, being semi-verbal puts my mind into a place where I can only form phrases, a few words of a time rather than fully coherent sentences. Got cookie, get out room, etc. Being non-verbal is when my brain completely rejects forming words. 
sometimes just out loud where I can't speak aloud, but I can still text fine, but sometimes over text too. When it comes to being nonverbal out loud too, my body becomes physically unable to move my lips and make my voice box work. work. And my brain can only come up with yes, no, or I don't know answers. So this will either go away on its own or after I sleep. So this can manifest in a lot of different ways. Um, And I think that that is what is important to remember about this too, is that each instance of being nonverbal or experience, this is going to be different for every single person. Like sometimes people might be able to blurt out a few words or a key phrase, or they may only be able to nod or shake their head or they may only be able to text, or they may not be able to communicate at all. And understanding that, I think, is so huge. Um, So someone else said that this looks and feels like if they were being abused or in a trauma response. So, you know, being nonverbal for this person is really the freeze response in action. Like, it is their body shutting down to protect themselves in times of high stress. Um, The third response says, it feels like I'm holding something in my mouth and I don't want to open it. Like a weight has settled on my tongue comfortably, but I can't get my vocal cords to work, not even to hum in response minimally. So in some instances, the mechanics of your body physically stop working. Like you can't operate your voice box. You can't open your mouth. You can't move your tongue. And um, you know, proprioception, like awareness of your body and space and like being able like to have the dexterity and the motor coordination to do certain things is something that a lot of autistic people struggle with. So this, I think, connects in with that, right? Like you're overwhelmed, your nervous system is overwhelmed. And so your body has a hard time with functioning the way that it's supposed to. Um, someone said it looks like responding with body language instead of verbal responses. You know, um, I think that that one is pretty straightforward that we see people using body language to communicate, but sometimes that's all people can communicate with. And then another respondent says, it feels like my face becomes stone and all emotions become repressed and like dead in the water. And, um, When I, the instance of me being um, selectively mute that I had recently, this is what it felt like. I felt like I was a shell of myself. I felt really um, flat. Excuse me. I felt really flat. I felt like so dissociated. And there's actually video evidence of this. And like, I don't, (laughs) I don't look like myself. Like, I just look like I'm not there at all. And that is that's what it feels like um, 100% for me. So again, not a super comprehensive survey. I only have a small sample pool. Um, So take all of this with a grain of salt, but it's just a starting point. I do really want to keep this open, I think, um, and maybe revisit it at another point in time with more uh, answers and responses just to see, um, you know, a broader sample. Um, so every single respondent in this did say that they experienced sensory overwhelm. Um, so it's interesting to me that not everybody that took the survey thinks that they're autistic, but all of them did experience sensory overwhelm to a point. And so I think that that is 
huge as well that like you know things that people associate with autistic people everybody experiences or can experience and I think that that's um a huge part of incorporating not incorporating of accepting autism is like you know that this isn't just a weird autistic thing like this is a human thing um so I asked how frequently do you experience overwhelm um sensory overwhelm so we had a third of the people said often so between 60 and 90 percent of the time uh one person said about half the time and then half the people said sometimes about 20 to 40 percent of the time so I also asked our instances of sensory overwhelm triggered by anything in particular and asked for an explanation um so most people said lots of sound and commotion is what triggers sensory overwhelm. Um, someone says it can be triggered by a few different things. It can be triggered by bright lights like Walmart and Arcane's, too much loud constant noise like a school cafeteria or like the mall or feeling a texture that you don't like, clothes mainly. Um, certain sounds, lots of sound, too many noises happening when you're trying to think or do a task. Um, too much of any sense, making it too difficult to keep up and process and being so overwhelmed that you lash out physically to get yourself out of a situation. Um, so, you know, what I am seeing, the common theme in this again is too, and it's sensory overwhelm, like it's in the name. So there is too much of one of your senses happening. And again, reminding everybody and myself that autistic brains are wired so that they have a harder time filtering out background sensory information. Like a lot of times if you're in public and, you know, there's a conversation happening next to you and then there's a conversation on the other side of you and then someone is clattering on their keyboard and then there's also traffic. Neurotypical people are able to filter that stuff out and focus on a conversation that they're having. Autistic people really struggle with this and, and people with people with neurodivergence really struggle with this. Um, and like, you know, I've had this experience where I'm talking to somebody and like, I have to like turn the volume down or like, you know, I have to, I have to get rid of some of the distractions because I physically can't focus. Um, you know, I had this happen the other day we went into Home Depot to get uh, some plants and the lighting section, every single fucking light was on. And I was like, I couldn't focus on what we were doing or where we were going in the store because it was so bright and I was just overwhelmed. And I was, I couldn't think about anything but those lights until we got out of that section. I had to cover my eyes. I looked down at the ground and I was like, why do why do all of them need to be on? I know they want we want to see what the lights look like, but why can't we just turn them on when we want to see? Like I was just so hyper focused on the lights because they hurt my eyes and it took all of my focus away from everything else. So, you know, we see this a lot with um, you know, autistic children that have those noise canceling headphones or um, you know, need a physical barrier, like need a curtain or something or some like anything to help filter out some 
sensory input that they don't need that is overwhelming them. Um, so then I also ask people to explain what sensory overwhelm feels and looks like for them um, or that they've seen in others. So I'm going to read these um, verbatim again. So the first one says, quote, sensory overload for me makes my head spin and hurt at the same time where I feel like my brain is rattling around inside my skull. Depending on what triggered it, I can also mess with my vision and center of balance. Usually if and when something gets really bad, I'll do harmful stims, scratching skin, hitting head to try and focus on those feelings instead of everything else. So I think that is a very powerful insight into um you know the behaviors that neurotypical people see as harmful like the self-harm behaviors um and this ties into ABA and like you know ABA is trying to reduce those harmful behaviors but this person right here says that they are doing those harmful stims to try and help get them to focus on that instead of everything else um you know, I liken this to what a lot of people who cut trigger warning self-harm will say that they um, need to feel something physically so they will cut themselves to help distract from the emotional and mental feelings that they're experiencing. And it feels like a similar thing here. You're overloaded and overwhelmed with sensory input from the outside world that you're taking control to try and stim um, to do something that is going to overpower all of those other senses to kind of bring you out of it. Uh, the next one says, quote, my brain feels like it's buzzing, unquote. Another one says, I get angry or frustrated, feels like I cannot focus and cannot think. The next person says, it feels like being feverish and lost in a grocery store, but the world is actively spinning and you can't get a grip on anything. It's a cacophony of things becoming far too incomprehensible. Someone said it looks like intense anxiety and being uncomfortable. And someone else said that it looks and feels like anger outbursts mostly or completely shutting down all emotions and becoming very passive. So in one person, they can have two very different responses, you know, being really angry um, or being shut down. And, you know, for me... And, you know, when I am very um, triggered and escalated, and this is often sensory overwhelm, I get really snippy and short and also have some anger outbursts, but I also, on the other end of it, can also shut down sometimes. So I think it's, um, you know, all of these responses are very different. And I love that because it is so different for every single person, but I resonate with every single one of them. Like it feels like the world is spinning. It feels like you can't get a grip. It feels like everything is just tumbling out of control. It feels like you're in a fever dream. Your brain feels like it's buzzing. Um, so like you can have a lot of physical and emotional and sensory things happening all at once. Um, and I think that's like the big takeaway with this is that like there's so much happening behind the scenes and you don't see half of it, you know? Um, so that's the end of the survey. Um, again, I know this kind of was all over the place and it did stem from me wanting to um, 
shed some light on this because I was in a situation, as I said, where, um, where I was in a situation where I was in sensory overwhelm. I was feeling, um, overwhelmed by everything around me. I could not, um, speak. I was having a very hard time communicating. I was also, you know, scared that my friends were mad at me and I didn't want, like, confrontation is really hard for me. And so that causes me to go into my trauma response and shut down. And while I have experienced the tra- all the different trauma responses, fight, flies, fight, <laughs> fight, flight, freeze, fawn, there's other ones as well, Um, you know, freeze response happens a lot. Like I shut down, I can't do things, I can't speak, I can't can't help myself get out of an uncomfortable situation. Um, so I wanted to shed some light on it. I also wanted to acknowledge that, you know, even if you're interacting with other autistic people, you're still you still may run into these issues. Like they may not be as understanding of your experience as you would like them to be, because you know, we are autistic. We do have different ways of viewing the world. And sometimes it's harder for us to put ourselves in other people's shoes. But at the end of the day, I also want to remind everybody, we are not a monolith as human beings, autistic people, you know, whatever group you belong to, if you're gay, if you're black, if you're cisgender, if you're trans, if you're, um, you know, an immigrant, whatever group that you are classifying yourself a part of, your whole group is still not a monolith everybody is different. We're all different, but we're all the same in the fact that we're all different. And I think that is what I'm really trying to get at. (laughs) Like autistic people are different. And even one autistic person to another is going to be, they're going to be different, but like, just because they're different doesn't negate that they deserve respect and that they deserve understanding and they deserve compassion. Um, you know, this world isn't built for autistic people. And, you know, we spend most of our lives feeling misunderstood and like an outsider and like we don't belong um, because of these differences that we have. And I think if society and and people in general can kind of grow to accept that and, and, and appreciate it and be welcoming of it, that that is where the change is really going to start happening. And I think in order for people to approach others who are different with compassion um, and understanding and grace, like we have to talk about these things, you know, I still, like, I didn't realize I was autistic until I was almost 30. And that's because I didn't think I was allowed to be autistic because my viewpoint of what autism was, was so incredibly narrow. Um, And I think, you know, that's... <laughs> that's you know me being non-binary as well like my view of what I was allowed to be was so narrow I mean I think you know expanding your worldview and your perspectives and and you know just hearing more stories and and more people's experiences is how as I've said already how we're going to heal as a as a society and as a species um so yeah, I don't know. I feel like again, <laughs> I feel like I say this every episode. So I might as well just make this my tagline. Sorry, it was all over the place. Thanks for sticking with me. Um, I do appreciate 
all of you for being here. I appreciate the feedback that I've gotten for this mini series. Um, you know, just people saying thank you for speaking about these things. Um, you know, thank you for giving me the space to do it. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. Um, I hope that you learned some things with this series. I hope that it inspires you to maybe learn a bit, little bit more about autism or try to understand people who have autism in your life or or be a better ally and advocate for autistic people. Um, maybe this made you think that you might be autistic. So, you know, go do some online assessments or talk, join some neurodivergent communities. Um, again, I'm not here trying to be like, everyone diagnose yourselves, but like, at the end of the day, you know yourselves the best, especially with autism. It's not, um, you know, there's not like medical symptoms for a lot of these things, but like, you know, your thought patterns, you know, the way that you view the world, you know, how you experience things. So you have the authority to say, yes, I think I'm autistic with or without a professional diagnosis. Um, so I don't know. Thanks for coming. I appreciate y'all. I um, I keep wanting to take a break and like have a break and go to the next season, and I'm I'm really struggling with doing that because I don't want. So I'm still trying to get my ad revenue back, and I need like consistent engagement and a certain number of listeners in order for that to happen. And if I take a break, that's not going to happen. But like, I also don't want to get burned out. So. You know, I was also like, oh, I want to take a break, but May is Mental Health Awareness Month and June is Pride Month. And, you know, I want I I want to do things based on those months and those and have episodes. And but, you know, I also am remembering that this is my podcast. It's not going anywhere. I don't have to do things just because it's Mental Health Awareness Month and Pride Month. Um, so all that to say I may be taking a break. Um, I'm not sure, but I'll let you guys know. Um, either way, um, yeah, I also wanted to um do my gratitude check for today. Um my gratitude is just, you know, how far I've come in my own personal healing journey. I had therapy last night and you know, this is the first time I've talked to my therapist in a little over a month. Um a lot has happened. You know, I I lost like seven friends. It was a really tumultuous uh conflict with a lot of big emotions. And, you know, I, I, I had this therapy session and my therapist and I cried together at the end of it because, because I'm proud of myself. Like she says, she's proud of me all the time. And that it means so much to me to hear her say that because it's not something I heard growing up a lot. And it's something that I needed to hear, but it's also something that I've never been able to give to myself. And like, I told her that, you know, I'm, I'm so proud of myself. I did all of this without needing to talk to her because I used to be going to therapy, you know, weekly and I was texting her all the time as well. And like, I got through this whole conflict on my own and I was able to recognize that, you know, this is, you know, I'm not compatible with these people and I need to set some boundaries and have some space. And like, I approached it with so much calmness and like you know I finally hit the point where I wanted to be in therapy and I didn't think I'd get to this point of of being able to have this sense of reflection and and being able to give myself all of this space 
So I'm grateful today that I am able to recognize my own growth and progress because I haven't been able to do that before. And I'm grateful for Teresa, my therapist. Um, I know she sometimes listens to these episodes. Um, so if you're listening, Teresa, um, I love you. You're the best. Thank you for everything. Um, and I'm just really grateful that like, I'm here and doing what I'm doing. <laughs> and I'm grateful for you guys. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is the intense emotions, that HSP, that autistic in me. Um, so that's my gratitude for today. Um, I hope that you guys can find something that you're grateful for. Um, I would love to hear it if you want to share it with me. Um, thanks for joining. I'll see y'all next week. I'll actually see you guys. Well, not see y'all. I'm not seeing anybody because <laughs> you're just listening to me. Um, but I'll be back for a mini soda on Monday. Um, so with that, keep trying to get through the Menti Bees and crying in your Chevys. Love you guys. Thanks for joining for another episode. You can find the show on social media on Instagram and Twitter at crying underscore trying underscore pod and on Facebook at crying and trying pod. You can also find me personally on Instagram and Twitter at L-E-X-G-O-N-G-I-V-I-T-2-Y-A underscore. If you'd like to email the show, feel free to send us questions, comments, episode suggestions, and any other feedback you want us to see to cryingandtryingpod at gmail.com. The best way for a small independent podcast like us to grow is for our listeners like you to share your favorite episodes with your friends. You can also rate, leave a review, and follow the show on your preferred streaming platform. And engaging in any of our social media posts will always help us be more visible. If you would like to support the show with a small one-time or monthly donation, you can do so through our podcast page on Anchor or through the Buy Me a Coffee page where blog posts related to the show are posted. All donations, no matter how small, go right back into the show so I can continue bringing you high-quality episodes. I am a proud member of the PodPros community and utilize PodMatch to connect with many amazing guests. This podcast is researched, recorded, produced, and edited by me, Lexi Hamsmith, using Anchor by Spotify. Thanks for listening.